morning. Well, thank you, Brian. And thank you, Ryan. This is uh, a transitionary Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the year, and we're uh, saying farewell to Brian and saying uh, hello to Ryan. Can't see where you are. Um, And, of course, tomorrow is the last day of the current year, 2012. So this is often a time uh, when we look back over the past year's events and we look forward to the next year, wondering what the future holds for us. So when we look to the newspapers and things like that that inform us about the state of the world, uh, I was, you know, on the internet surfing, as many people do these days. I looked at uh, the local newspapers and internet and came up with some examples of uh, some major events for this past year. As y'all are probably aware, the Mayan calendar ended December 21st. They ran out of stone. It was supposed to be a fiery, cataclysmic day, uh, and the world was going to end. But we're still here. Bummer. i got to pay taxes April 15th. <laughs> now, there would have been some good that would have come out of that. Uh, the medical world announced the first and only person ever cured of AIDS. You think about the AIDS uh, plague that's come upon this earth, There was an individual, Timothy Ray Brown, who's now 45, that uh, got AIDS in the 1990s, had it for over 15 years, and he got a form of cancer, a rare form of cancer, and had to get a a bone marrow transplant. And when they were looking for a donor for the bone marrow, they chose a donor that had a resistance to the AIDS virus. So they did a genetic uh, treatment in this bone marrow transplant, and he was actually cured the one and only person in the history of the AIDS epidemic was cured this last year in 2012. And of course, in the world of sports, we all know Michael Phelps, who retired this year at 27 years old with 22 Olympic medals. 18 of those were gold medals. That's twice as many as the nearest multiple medal recipient. That's a very significant accomplishment. So it was a year of accomplishments. But this year was also a year of significant change. Not so much a change in the national election. We hoped for change, but we kind of got the same thing. You got about the same mix of Republicans and Democrats. Some of the faces have changed. But pretty much government is continuing on as it was before, which is not necessarily good because we still have a fiscal crisis looming. And this whole thing with the fiscal cliff and taxes are going to go up here in a couple of days, that seems to be pretty much a certainty. But there was significant change in our state. Gay marriage was approved, marijuana was legalized, and liquor is now available in grocery stores. It was a significant year. It was also a year for loss and tragedy. We had Hurricane Isaac hit the Gulf Coast, and this was seven years after Katrina, and it again caused billions of dollars worth of damage. And then there was Superstorm Sandy in the Northeast, which caused, they estimate right now, over $50 billion in damage in the Northeast. We also had the loss of uh, entertainment greats. Andy Griffith died this year, Dick Clark, Mike Wallace, Larry Hagman of Dallas fame, and Whitney Houston. And of course, it was a year of continued violence, which we've heard a lot about in the press. We had violent strike at Oak Creek, Wisconsin, Aurora, Colorado, Newtown, Connecticut, 
and even locally here in Clackamas, Oregon. It was a year of loss in our nation, our community, our church, and for many of us, it was a year of loss personally. Sometimes this loss can be overwhelming and we get what I would call loss fatigue. We can get depressed. If this sounds like a very depressing opening, I want to change that this morning. But the question that would be asked in the, in the face of when we look back over the state of the world is, can we still be hopeful for the future? What if all we see is suffering and loss? Loss of a job, a home, a loved one, a marriage, or our health. Many of us have seen this kind of suffering, and when these things happen, the world appears pretty messed up. It appears as if God is not present, or he just doesn't care. That's what it looks like. In these times, many people question why a good God would let things, these kinds of things happen. Is he really good? Can he be trusted? You know, I've asked these questions several times in my life at various times. And what I've learned is that regardless of how things appear, God is good and he can be trusted. And you've heard me say that repeatedly in Sunday school class. We can place our hope in his promises. And having faith in him does make a difference in our life. I've learned this lesson by studying the lives of great men in the Bible. Men like Joseph and Daniel and Jeremiah. These men were uh, faced with incredible challenges in life, if you've read their stories. They had incredible challenges of injustice, persecution, imprisonment, and they had their lives threatened, sometimes multiple times. But somehow, they concluded that things were not as they appeared, but that God truly is good and can indeed be trusted. This morning, we're going to take a look at the life of Jeremiah as recorded in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. Lamentations, chapter 3, you'll find, uh, if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 584. Um, if you're using your own Bible, and I can't give you the page number, but it's tucked in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the prophets. And while you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of history, a little bit of background here. The, uh, the books of the Old Testament are brace, basically broken up into three categories. You have the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law is the first five books of the Bible. The prophets, we understand, starts at Judges, goes through Kings, uh, picks up the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. The writings is kind of everything that's left. And what you'll see in these major categories is two different perspectives that are given. There's a prophetic perspective, which is God speaking to his people, giving them a revelation about who he is, what his character, nature, and his plan is. He wants us to know. And in the writings, you see a wisdom perspective reflected. That's the response that we would have back to God in view of the revelation that he's given us. The Lamentations is part of the writings, and it has a wisdom perspective. It's reflecting the heart of humanity in response to the revelation of God. Lamentations is uh, Hebrew poetry, and it's mourning the destruction of Jerusalem. So a lament is, a, is an expression of grief. 
and it's a mourning specifically about the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, the city, was completely destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C. When I say completely destroyed, when the Babylonians came in, they had a scorched earth policy. They destroyed the walls. They destroyed the temple of Solomon. They destroyed the buildings. They left nothing there. It was the equivalent of a nuclear event. We think of nothing left when a nuclear bomb goes off. That's what Babylon intended to do to Jerusalem. And chapter 3 of Lamentations was Jeremiah's personal experience of that time in history. About what, how he saw this whole thing happen. Let's go ahead and, and read. We're going to actually uh, pick up in verse 319. But if you look at chapter 3, Jeremiah's personal uh, impact by this time in history, he reads, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. And what you're going to see as this lament moves through is Jeremiah relating all of the events of his life that were just terrible, horrible. And I heard Sean Sullivan say this morning, as he was describing a lament, you get right in the middle of this lament, lamentations, the five chapters of it, and you see this bright shining star. You see what Jeremiah learned, how he was able to take and understand the things around him and move forward with a hope. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 19. We'll read uh, two stanzas here. We read, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. See, Jeremiah wants us to understand the heart of what he's learned. And you'll notice that when I read that, I dropped off the personal pronoun. If you read it in the NIV, it says, I remember my affliction. But actually, if you look at that in the underlying Hebrew, there's not a personal pronoun there. Rather, this is uh, a statement to God. He's actually talking to God. He's asking God to remember his affliction and his wandering. He's asking God to remember his bitter suffering. And when he asks God to remember something... He's not informing God of his situation as if God didn't know. God already knows. What does God already know about Jeremiah's condition? Well, let me give you a little bit of history about Jeremiah. He was born in the time of the worst king of all of Judah, King Manasseh. And we think that, well, an evil king shouldn't live for a very long period of time. But in fact, this evil king had the longest reign of all of the kings of Judah. He reigned for 55 years. And in his evil reign, we would think that, well, evil means, you know, axe murderer type person. Well, no, actually Manasseh would have been seen by the world as very successful. People that lived in his period of time would have experienced relative peace. He was a great politician. He made alliances with the nations around him, brought kind of a localized peace, even though kind of the world was chaotic. He kept the country in a relative state of peace and economic prosperity. There were jobs. People were experiencing wealth 
and influence in their community. So if you look at, look at uh, Manasseh from the world's perspective, he was a very successful king. But God's judgment of him was that he was an evil king. Because what he did is rather than pointing people towards God and drawing them into the hope and promise of God's future, he actually turned the people to himself and his own designs that he completely rejected God and he brought in a false religions and he established a whole bunch of practices and policies which were destructive to the people and the people caught on to this and they kept going so that even when Manasseh died the people kind of had a momentum of evil see we need to understand the face of evil the face of evil isn't always blatantly violent it's actually very subtle to suck you away from the God who loves you and cares for you and has a plan for your life. And it's interesting that at the end of this reign of Manasseh, Jeremiah was born. And there was also a contemporary of Jeremiah who was the grandson of Manasseh. His name was Josiah. He turned out to be one of the best kings that they ever had. He came into power about two years after Manasseh died. And Josiah completely tried to undo everything that Manasseh had done. He tried to bring worship back and a, uh, an understanding of the law of God and the religious practice of the Jewish people and how they were set apart for God's purposes. And it was in that time that Jeremiah, 13 years into Josiah's reign, started his ministry. God called him to ministry. And even though he was... Uh, ministering under a good king, he was giving a message of bad things for the people, that they were going to experience judgment because of the condition of their heart. And that if they didn't change, they were going to get to a point of no remedy, and that they were going to be completely destroyed. And that was his ministry. Two-thirds of his ministry was to announce destruction and correction by God. Only one-third was there to encourage. This is a tough job that Jeremiah had. And he started it in the best of times, in the reign of Josiah. Well, Jeremiah um, ministered under five different kings. He saw in that period it go from the best of times to the worst of times, to the complete destruction of Jerusalem. Manasseh understood affliction. He understood wandering or homelessness he understood bitterness bitter poison that that's what was happening in his world around him in his time he remained single never had any children because god said don't have kids stay single he was persecuted by his family which was a priestly family you'd think his family being from a line of priests would get behind him that didn't happen he was plotted against by his own community and by the kings and the priests of the time and other prophets, or false prophets. In fact, they threw him into a cistern to die. And he was homeless. That's the life that Jeremiah has. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, God, remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. And this idea of remembering is not to bring to mind to God something that he doesn't already know. God already knew what Jeremiah's condition was. Rather, the idea here is that he's going to bring attention to it. He wants that to be in the forefront of God's attention. That's what remembering is. It's not a revelation of something you don't already know, but it's bringing attention to that which you already know. So, the lesson we can learn from this 
particular verse is that God is aware of our circumstances, no matter how depressing that they are. That's what Jeremiah wants to say. He says, God, remember my affliction. And then he goes on in verse 20, and he says, you know, the problem is not one of informing God of what is happening. The problem is one of attention, where we're focusing. Read verse 20, he says, well, I remember, I well remember them, the afflictions and the bitterness, and my soul is downcast within me. Well, no kidding. I mean, when you've got that much going on in your life, you get pretty depressed. What Jeremiah is describing here is he's describing his heart condition. When he sees the world around him going in this direction, it makes his heart heavy. He becomes depressed. In fact, he says here, I well remember. If you read that in the Hebrew, the way that they do that is they repeat the word. So he says, I remember, I remember. And that's why it's translated well remember. It's very present to his soul. And it actually uh, deeply affects him. He's indelibly etched in his very being by all of these events that are happening around him. And he's not just remembering the past, but he's remembering the present. That's the language that's used here. He's thinking of his present, and he's continually thinking on it. He's ruminating on it. And when you ruminate on things like that, you ruminate on the external circumstance, it makes you depressed. His continual reflection on the external circumstances is leading to depression in his soul. See, there, it's true. There is a bitterness and a suffering in this life. We've experienced it. But ruminating on it leads to depression. When we get to verse 21, we see this, this description of a heart condition. Jeremiah wants us to understand how do we change that heart condition. He says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The this is pointing forward to the next two verses. It's pointing to God's character. And he says, I call God's character to mind, and therefore I have hope. He's giving us a key of how you go from a heart condition of despair and depression to a heart condition of hope. That's what he's saying. When I look inwardly at who God is, ignoring the external circumstances and seeing the larger reality of who God is, it actually gives me hope. Jeremiah's hope is an inner attitude. It's an attitude thing. He's not happy about where he's at. He's hopeful. It's not a result of external circumstances. External circumstances don't change. Changing a heart condition of depression to a heart condition of hope depends on where we focus our attention. Are you going to focus on the world? Looking back, looking where you're at, maybe looking forward, participating in the world? Or are you going to focus on a greater reality, the greater reality that is God himself? And that's what Jeremiah shares in the next two verses. He says, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never, never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, Jeremiah turns his attention to the character of God's love, his loving kindness. In fact, this word, great love, 
is uh, often translated loving kindness. It's one of my favorite words in the Bible, said. You find it all over as a description of who God is. In fact, when he introduced himself to Moses, he said, I am this loving, kind God. This is who I am. And what Jeremiah focuses on is he focuses on the Lord's great love. And what I would point out here is that this word great love, when you read it in the NIV, it looks singular. But if you look at it in other translations, like maybe you have a King James or a New American Standard, you'll see that it's plural. It would be translated loving kindnesses. But in the NIV, they couldn't say great loves because we wouldn't understand that. But the idea of it being plural means that it's not a one-time thing. It's not like God loved us and that was it and we're done. It's that God loves us and he continues to love us. Repeatedly. It's plural. It's another thing that we see in this verse um, that isn't obvious unless you look at multiple translations. If you're looking at the NIV, it says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. If you look at uh, New American Standard or a King James, it'll read something like this. The Lord's coming loving kindnesses indeed never cease. What you see is you see a different emphasis. There's what they call a variant reading here. If you go back to the manuscripts that these translations were drawn from, there was a little bit of ambiguity. They didn't quite know how to uh, interpret the grammar. So one position is, is that the emphasis is on us. Because of the Lord's loving kindnesses towards us, we're not used up. We're not consumed. We don't meet our, our, our end. The other emphasis would be on loving kindness itself. The Lord's loving kindnesses, they don't cease. They're not consumed. They're not used up. And you say, well, that's like a little nuance. It's interesting that we have these nuances that you see when you look at different translations because both are informing basically the same thing. Even though you have a split in Bible translations as to how to interpret this, it's basically the same. God's loving kindnesses toward us never end. That's a very significant aspect of God's character that we need to understand. But Jeremiah doesn't stop there. He not only talks about God's loving kindnesses, but he also talks about his compassions. He says his compassions never fail. And again, you'll notice this is plural. God's compassion or tender mercies towards us aren't one-time deals. They're, they're repeated over and over and over again. And it says that they never fail. That means they never cease to be effective. God's compassion is effective in our lives. It never fails. It never ends. And he goes on to say that in the next verse. He says, These, the loving kindness and compassion of the, law, of the Lord are new every morning. I mean, think about that. God's involvement in our life is continual. It's always present. It's never ending. The way that I describe this to people is... I say, take a breath. God is closer to you than your own breath. That's how close God is to you and sustaining you in your life. That's God's loving kindness. That's God's tender mercies. They never cease. They're never used up. They're new every morning. Then he goes on to say, 
Great is your faithfulness. When I think about um, the loving uh, kindness of God and his faithfulness, I think of my wife. She's sitting alone up here in the front pew. Uh, But, you know, we talk about faithfulness in a marriage covenant. What that is, is when your, your mate, your partner, believes in you. Even when you're pretty unbelievable. And my wife goes through that a lot. She believes in me when I'm clearly not worthy of being believed in. Or I'm pretty unbelievable. And she has a remaining steadfast love for me. She's steadfast and true. She never quits on me. Now, I'm describing my wife. Multiply this by the largest number that you can possibly imagine and more. That's God's faithfulness towards you. God believes in you, even when you're unbelievable. He never quits on you, ever. God is good all the time. You know, we have that saying, but that's what it means. God is faithful. And finally we read, Jeremiah says to himself, The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. I'm going to read this in the New American Standard because I think it gives us some emphasis that's helpful. Jeremiah is talking about a heart condition and how we can change that heart condition such that we'll have hope and that that hope will impact the way that we live and the way that we function. In the NASB it says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. The idea of the Lord being our portion means that God is our inheritance. See, Jeremiah had lost everything. There was a time when he even lost the clothes on his back. That's pretty scary. Some of us have actually been through that, but not very many have. Jeremiah lost everything, had nothing left, and yet he knew that he had a future. And not only did he have a future, but God's people had a future. That God instructed him to go and buy a piece of property right in the middle of this time of uh, the siege against Jerusalem. To show the people that they had a future. Jeremiah knew the promise of God. He knew what was promised. He knew his inheritance. We know that because we, we look at the, the book of Jeremiah. You get to chapter 29, verses 11 through 14. We read about the promise to Judah. We read, this is God speaking, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Jeremiah knew the promise of God, and it was very specific, very specific to Judah in this case. But we're going to see that Jeremiah understood a larger picture of God's promise to all of humanity. We read in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, this is God's promise to his people. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Jeremiah knew God's promise of a future, of a restoration. He knew God's promise of forgiveness. That he would forgive their sins and remember them no more. That's what Jeremiah knew. Now, Jeremiah is looking at his own community and his own people. Are those promises only to Jeremiah and his people? I don't think so. Because when we get to Luke chapter 22, Jesus uses the words of Jeremiah about the new covenant that he was making in his blood for the forgiveness of sins for all. And I would direct you to Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This is a promise that we have from God. It says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the promise to you. That's the promise to me. That's what Jeremiah saw. And he understood that to change his heart condition, he needed to focus on the person and character of God and the plan of God. The promise of God. It doesn't get any simpler than this. John wrote in his letter, 1 John, chapter 2, verse 25. And this is a verse that we should all memorize. John writes, This is the promise which he himself made to us. Eternal life. If you've ever wondered what Christianity was about, that's it. It's the promise of God to you for forgiveness of sins and life eternal. That's what God promises us when we draw near to him. And that gives us hope. Jeremiah knows that regardless of what he sees happening all around him, that God is good. He's full of loving kindness and compassion. He's not holding back anything. God is faithful. He never gives up on us. And he can be trusted to keep his promises. That's what Jeremiah is telling us. Jeremiah acknowledges this from the very core of his being. He recognizes that this is a heart condition. It's not a set of circumstances. And he shows us that reflecting on God's character and promise results in an attitude of hope. That's why we can look forward to this next year. We can agree with the prophet Jeremiah. And he says, therefore, I will wait for him. Or therefore, I have hope in him. We agree with Jeremiah. We have a future with God. God can be trusted. So the question, is God good? Can he be trusted in all things? Well, Jeremiah tells, tells us yes. God is good all the time. No matter how things appear. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. 
great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. And because of this, this truth, I'm hopeful. And I'm thankful. How about you? Do you know that God is good and can be trusted today? He knows about our circumstances, and he's continually good, showing mercy and kindness every day. And he's given us a future and a hope, and he can be trusted. What do we take away from this passage? Well, what are your thoughts in the midst of life's suffering and trials? Sean Sullivan called this the shining star of lament. He said, this is the bright point. This is what it's all about. It's about a heart condition that can go from despair to hope. That's a life transformation. That's what we have to look forward to. So what are your thoughts in the midst of life suffering and trials? Do you dwell on the present circumstances or are you dwelling on God's character and promise? How do you see God's goodness and faithfulness today? I see God's goodness and faithfulness today in my wife, Karen. You'll often hear me uh, tell her, thank you for choosing me today. Because I am thankful. God has blessed me. How can you trust God more this upcoming year? That's what New Year's reflection is all about. It's not about the news stories from last year and the diets and exercise programs of this next year. It's about understanding who God is and what he's called us to in participation in his plan. The last question I would have for you is, have you placed your hope in him? You know, in the world, if that's your focus, there is no hope. As Brian was saying earlier, if that's all there is, is what you see in the world, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what Paul, the apostle, said. But that's not the greater reality of God. Have you placed your hope in him? Your faith in him? When I told my son that I was going to preach out of Lamentations, uh, he kind of dropped his head and shook it. He said, dad, 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 dad. Because he knows that Lamentations is kind of a downer. Right? But it's not a downer. It's about understanding how we can have a change of heart. And this is what I would leave you with this morning. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it talks about hope. Hope that should make a difference in how we live. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's the message from Jeremiah to us. That's the message from God to us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's draw near to him. Let's go ahead and close in prayer.
Lord, uh, I thank you that you've given us uh, prophets like Jeremiah, that he was faithful to record all of the challenges that he went through and exactly what it looks like to turn away from you and to experience the judgment of that and the difficulty of that and also the difficulty in standing with you, Lord, and that Jeremiah shared both. But in the midst of that, he also brought a message of hope. And Lord, we ask that that message of hope would be in our hearts today. That as we look forward to the new year, we would look with your eyes, looking on you and what you've done for us and what you've called us to. And Lord, we thank you for your strength and your protection in that. Lord, as we have opportunity this morning, we just ask that you would bless our offerings as we bring our offerings to you, that we begin this new year and close out this last year with worship of you, with all that we have, as we reflect on who you are, that you are our future, our portion. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen.